Our scripture reading this morning is Matthew 28, 16 through 20. But the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore go make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is God's word. When Jesus dropped in on our world, he started something that meant to keep going. Now it's our turn to keep the message moving, to reach, to grow, to equip others until Jesus returns. Get ready to hear exactly what Jesus said we need to do. 1965, Ford Junior High School, Tacoma, Washington, PE. My instructor was a man who was reputed to be a drill sergeant from World War II, and we were doing the unit on wrestling. And uh, so he would pick out different ones from the class, and we would you know, start at the perimeter, and then we would go at it. Uh, Mr. Nussbaum, and I wanted to impress Mr. Nussbaum, and, but there was a little bit of a quiver when he picked the person I was going to wrestle, Jim LaDuke. We called him the Duke. He was the king of our eighth grade class, and he just put me up against him, and I'm me, but I had a mantra, I'm small, but I'm wiry. And when the whistle sounded, the Duke didn't know what hit him. A whirling dervish of flailing arms and legs came to him and threw him every which way. There was only one problem. Up to this point, my only exposure to wrestling was, and at the time, it was Saturday morning wrestling on TV. <laughs> And I thought the objective was just to, you know, thrash him around, whatever. I didn't realize there were things like takedowns and reversals. I later learned those things, but I didn't understand any of that. I was full of sound and fury. In fact, Mr. Nussbaum said when the two-minute whistle blew and I walked off, he said, how long do you think you could keep that up? <laughs> I was um, all kinds of action but I didn't know my purpose. A lot of activity, but I didn't know what I was doing. Jesus wants us as a church to know what we're doing. He says in Ephesians chapter five, he says, therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. Days are evil? What does that mean? It means that the days are trending toward evil. We're in a position, we're in a world that's going in the wrong direction. The world is in serious trouble. So you gotta work hard and you gotta work smart and you gotta make the most of the time. How do we do that? Jesus has not left us to wonder. He's gone, he has left to prepare a place for all the peoples that we are going to rescue by being makers of disciple makers. Now, we looked at, a few weeks ago, 
the Great Commission. And we're continuing to look at that because that's our mission guidance. That's what Jesus has left us here on the planet to do, to make disciples. That's the core command, the imperative in the passage that Jordan read. A disciple is a Jesus follower. He listens to what Jesus says. He does what the Lord asks. He's becoming like Jesus. And he serves the true good of others in Jesus' name. But then there are three participles that describe the process elements. Go preach, baptize, and teach. That was fun to watch baptizing. That's in the Great Commission. We're doing what Jesus told us to do. Jesus actually employed the same three-stage strategy to invest in the 12 that he's asking us to use here in Memphis. Go preach, baptize, teach. In Jesus' case, he accomplished that within three years. He sought out, baptized, discipled or trained or taught, and then commissioned them to be disciple makers all in three years' time. That's what he did. And so what we've been doing in this series is kind of looking over Jesus' shoulder. We want to understand how did Jesus do that? And as I look at First of Anne, I'm struck by this. I think our biggest challenge is in the go preach phase of disciple making. This is about making intentional contact with others to whom we can share some extremely good news. And so I want to look over Jesus' shoulder. How did he do this? How was he so effective in making world changer disciples in a three year period of time? And we've been looking at the go preach part, the going part. And we've been using the five S's, seek, see, share, serve, speak. And so here's what those five are. Seek means make intentional contact with outsiders. God has already put around you the people that he thinks are the right ones for you to make contact with. Then C, look past appearances to actually discern points of pain and a yearning for grace. Do a spiritual audit and see who this person is. Then share, fellowship with those who need care. Track time with them. Serve is use practical and selfless service to make what you say credible. And then speak, use your words to explain how the gospel can take them to a new and better place. All of these five S's, Jesus did. And so last week, we saw how, or not last week, but four weeks ago, in the last sermon, we saw how the Zacchaeus story clearly illustrated two of those S's, two of those steps that Jesus took. The first was seek. He made intentional contact with Zacchaeus. And when asked, what are you doing? He said, I have come to seek and to save the lost. In other words, seeking is part of my mission. That's how I'm going to do this. And that was the first step. Uh, Jesus was very intentional about making contact with people, with lost people. In fact, he announced that's a part of his core mission, to seek and to save. So we spent time with the Zacchaeus story to understand how did he do that and what was that like? And here are the principles, just by way of reminder, since it's been a month, that we learned. Lost people need to be sought before they can be saved. That's what Jesus said. In fact, in his case, it meant going from the throne room of God to our miserable planet, sin-wracked planet. 
Jesus calls us to become a search and rescue team. It's not just we set up a rescue station and say, y'all come, we go find them. Seekers see needs where others see lost causes. Seekers put themselves at risk and are undaunted by criticism. Jesus was very criticized for what he did with Zacchaeus. Seekers have learned the power of compassion. Well, this morning, we want to expand that a little bit and acknowledge that another aspect of the go preach is share. And the Zacchaeus story that we looked at clearly illustrates this one of the five S's because Jesus actually sought him out and then went to his home and had dinner with him and his friends. And that was not a one-off. Jesus actually enjoyed fellowship with people that the religious leaders had written off. And this was a vital component of his go preach strategy. Let me show you another example, all right? This is the passage about Matthew, the guy who wrote the first gospel. He was a tax collector. And by society at his time, he was viewed very negatively. And Levi, after Jesus had said, come follow me, Levi gave a big reception for him in his house. And there were a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with them. Now, tax collectors means, in, in that culture, sellouts. This was not the, uh, the beautiful people. This is the rejects. And he's gathered together a great crowd of tax collectors, other people who are reclining at the table with them. The Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, it's not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus intentionally builds positive relationships with those who need a physician. He's gonna share life with them. This morning, I want to examine one more of the S's, the, the C one. And we're going to look at Luke 7, 36 through 50, and contrast what a self-righteous man sees and what Jesus sees when they consider the exact same person. Jesus is going to look at this person and draw a certain conclusion, and this person, his name is Simon, is going to look at this person and draw a completely different conclusion. Jesus gets it right, no surprise. Simon is totally off. But in this account, you are going to see how Jesus used the go preach strategy of see, actually see who we're talking to. So let's jump into the passage. I'll read a section and then I'll comment and then eventually we'll extract some principles to learn from Jesus' example. Now, one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. The Pharisee, Simon, thinks, here's Jesus, this wandering preacher. It's an honor for me to invite him. 
He's, he's not thinking, <laughs> you do honor me by coming. This man does not view Jesus positively and it won't, and it goes downhill from here. What's interesting to me is Jesus actually accepted the invitation. Jesus actually went to this man's home to fellowship with someone who does not think highly of him and Jesus knows it. Now, we'll get a glimpse of his thinking in a minute, but then the passage says, and behold, uh, some of your translations don't have it. I read from the New American Standard, which does. This word idu is the Greek word behold. It's a command. See this. He says he went to this man's home for dinner. And look. <laughs> this is the first warning, kind of a sea warning. Look at who's here. Look at who's coming. A woman. And then he describes what this woman did. She's described as a sinner which probably means, I can't say this with confidence, but probably means she was a prostitute. Now, when a dignitary in a community or a village hosts a formal dinner, it's possible for people from the neighborhood to come and kind of hover around the perimeter to be able to watch what's going on. That's, you know, normal. But for a prostitute to come to a Pharisee's house... That was a bold move. Now, she was actually coming with an alabaster vial, which means she was coming prepared to do something. That tips us off this, that this was not her first encounter with Jesus. Now, we'll learn a little bit more about that in later verses. But when she heard Jesus was at this guy's house, then she found this vial of perfume, which was very expensive. And she came to the dinner, and she comes with a plan. Now, Jesus is going to later say, she has been forgiven much, and he uses a perfect tense, which tells us this is something that happened in the past with enduring results. I don't know, we don't know exactly when this happened, although this is a fun fact. We will get to talk with her in heaven. She'll be there. And if you know Jesus, you'll be there too. And you can come up to her and you can say, would you please tell me the whole story? I want to know every detail. But apparently at some point, she had heard Jesus. I don't know if it was a one-on-one -on -one encounter or in a group context, but she heard Jesus talk about how faith in him, faith in God, is the key to forgiveness and her heart said with a resounding tone, yes. So it's legitimate based on those perfect tenses that are used and the fact that she's coming with an alabaster vial, she's already coming with a plan that this is not her first encounter. Now, how does this work at a meal? To recline at the table would be, let's imagine that this is the table here, all right? I realize it's the baptistry, but let's imagine this is the table. And everyone would lean on their left side and their head would be near the table and their feet would be out this way, away from the table. So everybody's gathered around the table, Jesus, Simon, and the other esteemed people in the community, and his feet are out here. And so when they 
woman is coming, she's able to, from the perimeter, she's able to access his feet. Was she overcome with emotion? I mean, I can't manufacture, personally, I cannot manufacture sufficient tears to wash someone's feet on call. Can you? But this woman, she comes and she sees Jesus and she has experienced forgiveness already. And she is overcome and she is sobbing. And her tears are falling on Jesus' feet. And she's taking her hair and using that to dry his feet. And then she's taking from this alabaster vial perfume and she's anointing his feet. This is deep reverence. Now what would you do if you're at a formal dinner and someone comes and does that? I realize that we don't have the culture that does this. What are you doing? Jesus didn't say anything. He did not discourage her. Why? He sees who she is and what she is becoming. Now when the Pharisee who would invite him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. You don't know this in the English language, but both of the conditional statements are what are called a second class condition. Uh, Greek has different ways it can structure an if-then statement. And so basically what he's saying if this guy were a prophet, and he's not, and if he knew who this woman is, and he doesn't, that's what he's thinking. And that's what comes through in the language. Now here is an incredible irony. Think about this. I mean, <laughs> Simon thinks he knows who this woman is. I know who she is. When in fact, he's the one who's in the dark. He doesn't get it. He is deluded into thinking, God doesn't want to have anything to do with this woman, and neither do I. And Simon's got it wrong. Simon does not truly see this woman. Jesus does. Here's his story. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. Which of them, therefore, will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more? And he said to him, you have judged correctly. Did Simon suspect some sort of trap? I don't know. A denarii is one day's wages. So 500 denarii is 
basically a year and a half of wages, and 50 would be a month and a half's wages. When it says that someone graciously forgave, the word that's used there is karizomai, which is important for you to know. I don't, I'm not necessarily interested in impressing you with Greek words as much as I want you to understand what's going on here. Karizomai is based on the word charis, which is the word grace. Karizomai means to give grace to someone. And so when Jesus says, uh, here's two people who are in debt. One owes a year and a half's wages, the other owes a month and a half wages, and yet they are given grace. This person applies grace to their history. And then he says, which, which would you appreciate more? Now later, when he talks to the woman, he's going to use the more common word for forgiveness, which is a fiemi, which is a way of saying, he uses in the parable this giving grace, applying grace to history, and then when he talks to her, he's going to say, I'm going to, uh, that word, a fiemi, means to take a debt and cancel it. I'm going to apply grace to history, and I'm going to cancel your debt. He's using both of those words in this passage. Um, Taken together, these two words are basically telling us, as it relates to this woman, that Jesus is saying, I'm going to apply grace to the past, and I'm going to deny your debt the power to adversely affect your relationship with God. Now, Simon is commended by Jesus. In fact, Simon, in his answer, uses charizomai. He says, Good answer. The principle, the greater our sense of what we have been forgiven through grace, the greater our love for the forgiver. The greater your realization of all the ways in which God has applied grace to your life, the greater your appreciation, your love for God. And turning toward this woman, he said to Simon, get this, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time that I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to her, her sins, which are many, have been a fee me forgiven. And there is debt paid for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. It's an incredible irony. Simon dismisses Jesus because he does not see who this woman is. When in point of fact, he's the one who sees and Simon is the one who's blind. Jesus asked him, do you see this woman? And Simon doesn't. It wasn't mandatory for Simon to have expressed hospitality through servants washing his feet. He could have done that. He could have said, hey, come wash his feet. To give him a kiss of greeting and an anointing. But that would have been a kind gesture and communicate honor. It tells us what Simon really thinks of Jesus. Not much. Ooh, 
He doesn't just not see this woman, he doesn't see Jesus, does he? Simon saw this woman as a lost cause and someone to be pushed away. And clearly that's not the case. We don't know when, but this woman has heard Jesus previously. She was not a lost cause, but a woman with a desperate longing for forgiveness. She was a woman who was carrying around a burden. And I know this because of how she responded. She was carrying this incredible burden. I don't know what I can do. And then she heard Jesus talk about a God who forgives through grace. God is willing to forgive you and give you grace. And her heart said, I want that. It's as simple as trusting through faith in a God who gives grace and in me who will make it possible. So when Jesus spoke, she believed. And she came to Simon's house out of gratitude. And Simon should have seen this woman. And he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. They were forgiven in the past and they stand forgiven now. Perfect tense. And those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? They don't see either. And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Her sins have been an event from the past with results abiding into the future. Your sins have been forgiven. Your faith has saved you. She exercised faith. And those past actions have an enduring result. And Jesus was not blind to her sin. I mean, she has been forgiven. And he actually says, Your, her sins, which are many, some people like to think of Jesus when he forgives sin, he forgives and forgets. But this verse would tell us no. He forgives even though he's very aware that her sins are many. But he's going to apply grace and he's going to deny that debt, the power to affect this woman's future. She believed Jesus' message and she was forgiven. I don't want to move on without at least acknowledging, acknowledging this. There may be someone in this room and you are carrying around a heavy load. It relates to maybe something you did or maybe it's an accumulation, a history. But the same message that this woman heard is relevant to you. Your faith in Jesus Christ can be the means by which you are forgiven and experience grace. And all you have to do is tell the Lord. You would say something as simple as this, God, I am a sinner. I deserve eternal separation from you. But I believe Jesus died on the cross, paid for my sins, and that in him I can be forgiven and experience grace. If that's something your heart is feeling a pull toward, don't leave this morning without saying yes and doing it. 
And I'll give you an opportunity right when we have the benediction. She was actually acutely aware of how much she had been forgiven and therefore she loved much. And by the way, the word there, love, is agape, which is love by choice. This is not phileo, kind of the, the love between family members. She wasn't viewing him as her sugar daddy or boyfriend or something like that. She was viewing him as someone whom she loves by choice because of what he has done in forgiving her. You and I are going to meet her in heaven. <laughs> I, I'm, I mean, there's so many people in the Bible, but I'm looking forward to talking to her and just saying, walk me through what happened. Well, now here's my first question for you. What does Jesus see when he looks at you? We know what he saw when he looked at this woman. What does he see when he looks at you? I will tell you the answer. It's in Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When Jesus, and I'll just do this for me, you can do it for you. When Jesus sees me, he looks through the cross to see me. And he says, Jim, I know what happened when you were six years old. I've told you this story here a while back. And I'm applying grace to all of your history. What I see is someone who I am choosing to adopt as my child who will live with me for all eternity. That is who you are. And stop letting the world tell you you're something different because that is who you are. So if you understand that, do you know someone that you would consider a lost cause? Is there someone in your circle that you would say, there is no way? Or is there someone who is so burdened by guilt, so beat down by their history, that they think there is no way that God ever wants to have anything to do with me? You will miss an opportunity if you see a super sinner as a lost cause. Who's the greatest sinner who ever lived? I don't know if Paul was being humble or, or if this is true, but it's in the Bible, so it must be true. He is the chief of sinners. He is, if you were to think about him, he is the last man that anyone would think is capable of being saved. This is a guy who is killing believers. Think about that for a minute. Paul is going to be in heaven and he's going to meet some of the people that he killed before he came to Christ. Wouldn't that be a fun conversation to listen into? Are we capable of looking for the deep longing in the heart of a lost soul that answers to what the gospel provides? Whom has God placed around you who is a lost cause, but in fact they're carrying a burden that only Jesus can remove? So the first thing you need to do is to ask Jesus to show you what he sees. Jesus sees the people around you. He knows the burdens they're carrying. Ask him, God, would you please show me 
What is this person carrying? I want to see this person the way you see them. Would you please help me? And I'm happy to report that God does that. He answers that prayer. Let me read you an account. Uh, This one isn't on the scripture you'll see, but it comes from the book of Acts. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, get up, go to the street called Straight, inquire at the house of Judas, uh, different Judas, for a man named uh, Saul from Tarsus, for he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. (laughs) Now, if you are Ananias, this is the guy who has been murdering believers. He's murdered them in Jerusalem. Now he's coming to Damascus to do the same. And Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man and how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. This is a really bad plan, God. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. This is Jesus talking. I see who Paul can become. I see who he is capable of being. Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. Jesus can show us the hearts of the people around us if we'll plead with him and say, show me, what is the burden that this person is carrying? So here are some practical questions you can use, a couple diagnostics, all right? First one, you'll have to have developed some relationship with a person before you can ask this question, but what burden or guilt are you carrying from your past? What do you wish you could change from your past? That question's a good one. It'll give you some insight. Here's another one. What makes you anxious when you think about some excuse me. What makes you anxious when you think about someday standing before God? And see what they say. And then you can tell them there is hope. How do I know that? Because Jesus says through Paul, this man that he saw who eventually wrote something in 1 Corinthians. He says, and he lists a whole bunch of people who are sinners. And then he says this, and such were some of you. It's possible for me to become someone other than who I was. Now in my case, because the Lord brought me to Christ at age six, he spared us all the sight of what I would become. But trust me, it would have been awful All of us are lost causes, except for the fact that God's transforming grace can make us into somebody else, somebody different. So here's our summary. We want to go preach. We want to be a people on the move, making intentional contact with people. So we are going to see, we're going to look past their history to discern points of pain and a yearning for grace. We're going to fellowship with them. We're going to use practical and selfless service to make what we say credible. We'll talk about that next week. And then we're going to use our words to explain how the gospel can take them to a new and better place. We'll talk about that next week as well. Because we are committed to becoming a people on the move who are making intentional contact with the people of our community for the purpose of sharing Christ. Now I have one more thing I want to tell you. If you will do this, something incredible will happen. When seed is sown on good soil, 
Uh, Jesus told a parable, including somebody that everybody else would write off. It will bear a bumper crop. 30, 60, 100-fold fruitfulness, according to Jesus, is normal. God's got people he's put in your circle, and every one of them who names the name of Jesus, even though they look like the exact opposite of someone who could possibly come to Christ, they could become the one through whom there is 30, 60, 100-fold fruitfulness. It won't happen unless we seek, we see, we share, we serve, we speak. Let me show you an example of what can happen when one young man is seen and the gospel is shared and here's what happened after that. Hi, my name is Joy and I'm a pastor from India and this is my shepherding story. The story of uh, a young boy, a very small boy, about eight, nine years, whom I will call Tom for this story. So Tom used to be a part of our church. Uh, our church is Sunday school ministry, children's Sunday school ministry, and he would come to our Sunday services. He would come to our Friday evening fasting and prayer meetings. And I saw Tom uh, developing great love for Jesus, coming close to God. He would never miss any prayer meeting. As a kid of eight, nine years, he would just come, and I, my heart was on this boy. In fact, I used to call him that you are church's son. Uh, in Hindi we say, you are church ki aulad, meaning you are the son of the church. And that's the nickname I gave him, you are son of the church. I saw him uh, grow, in, uh, you know, grow in love for Jesus along with his younger brother. And both these small boys would come to the prayer meetings and then uh, they would hear stories about Jesus, who Jesus is, what he does, what he has done, the, how much he loves us and all those things. Now, his father, Tom's father, was a black magician and he was into evil spirits and some real dark stuff. Uh, so uh, Tom's uh, mother uh, was sick for many, many years. So while Tom's father was himself a solution provider for many people uh, using the evil powers, he couldn't do anything to heal his own wife. And so one day the wife was, I mean, Tom's mother was very, very sick. And they all went home after Sunday service. In the evening, the mother was very sick. And the whole family was fed up with this sickness. And Tom, this, this boy, all of eight, nine years, uh, that evening had received a New Testament from the church. A small little Gideon New Testament. Tom told his mother, Mama, we are... Um, we have done everything possible. Uh, Papa can't heal you either. So Mama, just do one thing. Just lie down. And we have heard in the church that Jesus is a healer. So he took that little uh, New Testament and, and just as an act of his faith or expression of his faith, uh, Tom and his younger brother, who both believed in Jesus, uh, kept the... A Bible made the mother lie down and kept the Bible on the chest of the mother and just prayed for the mother. Lord Jesus, would you please heal my mother? And uh, the Lord Jesus did heal Tom's mother. And uh, that was a turning point for the family in terms of, the, of their faith uh, to follow Jesus as a family. So the mother, because of that healing, came to Christ. The coming Sunday, Mother, the mother came to the church and I was preaching that morning on marital faithfulness uh, of how the husband and wife should be faithful to each other, loving each other and all those things. And this lady was sitting there having healed uh, by Jesus just a week ago. And now she sits there, listens to the sermon. After the sermon, she takes my hand away as I was meeting people, greeting people. She holds me by the hand and she takes me to the side and she confesses to me and she says, Pastor, uh, I am in an extramarital affair for the last 
12 years uh, with my landlord and my husband even doesn't know uh, doesn't know it and I'm kind of stuck in that thing and I, this is the lifestyle I'm living and I said so I think hopefully you you also know by now what you should be doing stop doing it in the name of Jesus follow what is right and be faithful to your husband so she went back and I visited her after three days and I spoke to her I took her on the side and I, I asked her are you out of it? Have you taken a decision? And she said, yes, I am out of that relationship and now I'm faithful to my husband. I want to be faithful to my husband. And so that, so Tom believed in Jesus. His younger brother believed in Jesus. His older brother and Tom's father was still not believing in Jesus. And so the older brother was beginning to show some interest but didn't really give his life to the Lord. And so I began to visit their home more often. And I used to notice that the moment I entered the house, Tom's older brother would leave the house immediately because he knows uh, our, our intention. He knows that they will give us the gospel again. They will talk, tell us about Jesus. So he would avoid me. Uh, and uh, what amazingly what happened is uh, within some time, uh, the, even the older brother, Tom's older brother, also gave his life to the to Christ and uh, I also really uh, worked with him uh, spent hours and hours with him uh, and I just showed him that you know he's worth much more than he's wasting his life dancing in marriages uh, just worked with these three young boys and now I'm very happy to say that Tom's older brother is a full-time ministry intern with us in the church Tom himself is a guitar player in the church and Tom's younger brother is also a, a, a very active a teens, a teens group member in the church. But now, and the mother is in the face. So all the three boys are now believing in Jesus. Um, the, the mother is believing in Jesus, but the father is still into uh, some, some really bad stuff, uh, worshipping idols and all those things. Idols and demons, actually, evil spirits. So one day, uh, within a few weeks, I saw the father come into the church, and I was quite uh, surprised by his, and also I was a bit uh, alert, because when two spirit worlds collide, uh, stuff can happen. So I was very, very alert with, the, with that person's presence. Uh, and after, he, he was there for the service, and after some time, I got to speak to him, and he said, my young brother believes my younger son Tom believes in Jesus all my three sons believe in Jesus my wife is healed by Jesus and now believes in Jesus I also want to believe in Jesus I want to give up my my sorcery stuff my black magic stuff and I also want to give my life to Jesus and it's beautiful now the whole family follows the Lord Jesus Christ this person Tom's father is a very famous community leader where people used to come to him with all kinds of problems and he would solve quote-unquote solve those problems using the evil powers uh, the people still come to him and he still uh, tries to solve those problems but the only difference is that now he prays for those people in the name of Jesus and of course wonderful things happen people he has the whole family he's like an evangelist he has led so many people to the Lord and now the whole family follows the Lord Jesus Christ their older son um, he has given his life to uh, being a full-time missionary to Uttar Pradesh so currently he's a ministry intern with us he's pursuing his theological studies and hopefully over the next three to four years we will be sending him off as a missionary to Uttar Pradesh in North India. This is my shepherdology or my shepherding story. Thank you.